you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the iFreak Show. Today in our panel, we have Guy Rambo. Hello from Brazil. This is James Uber from Minneapolis, and we have a guest today. Please welcome Parveen Kaler. Hi, this is Parveen. I'm from Vancouver, Canada. Cool. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Oh, I've been doing mobile development, uh, specifically iOS development, almost 10 years now, more than 10 years now, I think. And previous to that, I used to work in the video games industry. I was working on Sony PSP games way back in 2007. And I was sitting at my desk watching a keynote, a keynote when the original iPhone was announced. I'm sitting at my desk with a Sony PSP in my hand, watching keynote for the iPhone. I'm looking at the PSP, I'm watching the keynote. I'm looking at the PSP, I'm watching the keynote. There's like, clearly one of these things is the past and clearly one of these things is the future. So in about 2008, when the App Store came out, I left the video games industry, went into mobile development, started building iOS apps, uh, and I haven't looked back since. 2008, that's a good run. Yeah, so it's I'm, been about I'm, a decade. So I met Parveen at AltConf this year, 2018, where he gave a talk on iOS architecture at scale. And we chatted a little bit afterwards. And we thought it'd be a great episode to talk about what considerations do you have when your app is huge, your team is huge? Because most of us aren't working on things at that scale. So what do you think? talk was about iOS architecture at scale. So let's, let's define scale a little bit. So the talk was subtitled millions of customers and billions of dollars. So this is lessons learned from uh, working on a very large, let's say, Fortune One <laughs> app. So there were, on a regular day, there's about a million daily active customers. So I say customers rather than users because customers, like they're actually making a purchase. They're giving you money and you give them stuff. It's not like a social network where money generally is not involved. And billions of dollars, I believe, like, the, the top line revenue is just ridiculous every single year. So like quality really matters and being able to move quickly and add features and uh, give feedback to customers really, really matter, matters at scale. So the app in total was about a half a million lines of code, just the full app. And I worked on the product, product page team. So the product module was about 50,000 lines of code itself. And this team was about two or three developers. So that scale, that's huge. You're, you're, you, it's going to be difficult to find more customers involved, more lines of code, yeah, more money involved than that. So that's really, really large. From your your experience, 
is there a big difference between like a couple of million of users with millions of dollars in revenue or an app that has like you said millions of users like tens of millions and billions of revenue yes so The dollars really start to matter when the app is for a publicly traded company because you might accidentally put in a feature that accidentally affects revenue. And if it accidentally affects revenue, it might accidentally affect the stock price for this quarter. So you have to be like it like the stakes are really high at that point in time. So that that's on the dollars point of view. And on the customer's point of view, every time you increase like a magnitude of the number of customers, Your, your the frameworks and like the web services that you build on have to be hardened and they have to work at that scale. So, for example, the app went from a REST to a GraphQL interface, but that was only the front end of the web service interface. There's an entire orchestration layer underneath that that is built to query millions and millions of products and be able to do it quickly for millions and millions of customers. I guess you start uh, hitting more edge cases as well when you have tens of millions of customers. Yes. So if you have a million millions of customers, like a one in one million uh, event happens every single day. <laughs> so you really have to really work on the edge cases to begin with or else all your days will be debugging edge cases. You'll just be working on edge case to edge case to edge case to edge case. So when you implement everything, you have to think through the edge cases and how often it can happen and really deal with them up front. So if you're a new, a new developer coming on a, a large team like this, what are some major differences you're going to notice? Uh, major differences is going to be around process around communication and, and how you get code into, into the app. So there is a pull request process generally at this scale, but there's also going to be a release train. So the pull request process, which most developers, I'm going to guess, should be familiar with, there's more scrutiny with respect to code coverage of unit tests and, and more process around standardizing how a pull request looks, like the text of the pull request, the description, and more process around uh, how a code review of the pull request happens. And then merging happens branch to branch. So for example, nightly, uh, you would send up, there's a nightly build and it gets sent off to offshore Uh, testing. And there's somewhere between 50 and 500 human testers that test it every single night and test for regressions. And at the end of the week, there's a weekly build. Now, this weekly build goes to about a million associates. Associates are they're the workers in the stores, in the brick and mortar stores, and they'll get a build every week to test it every single week. And so you're getting regressions back every night or on a weekly scale. And All of this happens before it hits the app store and end customers actually see uh, your code. So there's a level of like releasing that happens to harden, harden what you've built. And so what, what part of that would you call the release train? I think, yeah, like you said, most of our audience is somewhat familiar with the pull request. But like, what are the specifics so of like, the release? Correct. Uh, so, sorry. Uh, there'll be a nightly branch, and there'll be a weekly branch, and there'll be beta branches, and then there'll be like release candidate branch, and then a sub submission candidate branch. So the night nightly branch will go go off to offshore testing, and once it's once it's been signed off by nightly testing, it that pull request will be moved from that branch to wider uh, used branch. If that makes sense. 
yeah, that's difficult to describe it in words. Yeah. <laughs> so the train is like all the different stops that you have to do to get a release out to the customers, starting with the QA. Exactly. And you've exactly. got another element of scale, which is you know worldwide. You've got teams on the other side of the world working while the U.S. team is sleeping. Exactly. Hey, U.S. and Canada, <laughs> but yes. No, Canada, of course. <laughs> and speaking of uh, releases and, and branches, what's the process for release notes? Are the release notes pretty and organized, or are they like just small bug fixes and improvements? Because I think Apple is going to start complaining about that, aren't they? Yep. So at that scale, there is a release manager. And that, and the release manager is responsible for the final okay of what's going out in a release. And the release manager is responsible for the release notes as well. They work with product marketing and they work with business to really highlight what is coming out in this release. There might be store ads, there might be TV ads, there might be flyers that are also being coordinated at the same time. So at that scale, your re like your release notes aren't just something that a developer writes up. It's really coordinated with the broader marketing team. So that makes a lot of sense. So you're coordinating with a lot of different parts of the, the company. What are some considerations with with the code that are different than, say, your average three to five person team? So the talk was about our iOS architecture at scale, and the talk was about good architecture. So let's let's define my personal definition of good architecture. Good architecture is, I would say, small, simple, and explicit. So those are the three items I would say lead to good architecture. So when you have an app that is a half a million lines of code long, can't make decisions that will 2x the number of lines of code. So there, there may be some for, uh, like framework styles where there's an explosion of like files or there's an explosion of the lines of code. And once you're at that scale, that's just a decision you, you can't make. There are also code styles where the code paths are not linear. So, so a nonlinear, say like very callback style or a very uh, reactive style may work in smaller teams. But if your module has to interact with other modules uh, and now say there's a bug and then you set a breakpoint somewhere in your code and it just snakes through many different modules, that's going to be crazy, very difficult to debug, very difficult to add or remove move code. Uh, also explicit, like explicit state mutation, explicit memory ownership is really required as well. So it has to be obvious which object owns which other object, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, what are some code differences, like even like on the lines of like day-to-day -day stuff, code standards that are different from a, different, a smaller team? I would say, so it, like coding style, you, you don't want to get lost in the weeds and nitpick every every single bracket, every single brace. But the coding style, you more want to wor worry about if, say, a model object is built one way, you kind of want to unify all of your models to look that same way as well. And if a view is built a, a specific way, you kind of want to unify all views to look that same way as well. So unification really matters. Like... Have you ever read a book where different chapters were diff read by different authors? It's really jarring to read a book like that. You really want the book to have one uniform voice, and you think about code bases like that. 
that way as well. You really want the code base to have one uniform voice. So, maybe, so uh, an example of that could be, say, the way Cocoa patterns such as delegation, if, if there's a controller and a detail controller, you kind of want to uniformly always use that same pattern all, this, all the time. So that a new developer showing up isn't shocked by a different, say, delegation or callback pattern happening. Okay, so it sounds like we're talking about two things. One is like a, a view, something that the user would see, and others are common patterns throughout. Let's, I, I'd like to get into both because I think they're both pretty yep. interesting. Let's talk about the view stuff first. So if you have a bunch of pages, a bunch of views, and you want them to have a similar look and feel, you know, that takes some customization, which if you're not thinking about it can result in a lot of duplicated code. How do you combat that? So let's first talk about uniformity of a view. So the way that, say, so controls are, are initialized. So the first thing you have is the your init method. Like, the way that controls are initialized should be the same across all views. And then the, the way, next thing that's going to probably happen is constraints. The way constraints are built and activated should be uniform along the same way. So th there's always the uh, hot button issue of uh, interface builder versus constraints in code. I prefer wiring up uh, UI in interface builder, but the team had chosen to wire up constraints in code. And I'm fine with that, like pick and choose your battles. Having code and constraints that are laid out the same way, uniform and apt, is, is more important than my, my personal tastes. So that's an example of uniformity. Very cool. Uh, I missed the second, oh, missed um, the second part of your question, James. We'll, we'll get there. What about things okay. like you know, custom colors, custom fonts, different padding, that type of stuff? That stuff that frequently gets dumped into a view file, and if there's a bunch of different view files, like, how do we keep that from being just duplicated code everywhere? Correct. So the way that design showed up in the app would be the designers design in Sketch. Then they use another app called Zeppelin that manages, like, all the flows in the app itself. It, it basically break, breaks down Sketch into a whole bunch of storyboards. And the storyboards can be shared for use cases with a broader team. You can comment on it and it exports, say, colors, labels, stuff like that text views. So from this, there was a, a team that actually created a framework just around styling. So styling of fonts, styling of colors, stuff like that. There was an initiative going on to push all this uh, stuff into XE, an XE asset catalog, but that was only halfway there. So yeah, pull all of that out into a uniform low-level library that everyone can use. This seems to be a trend in large iOS projects. And even if you don't have a large iOS project, you sometimes need to customize the theming of the entire app for some special occasion, or maybe you want to support theming like dark mode and stuff. So yes. I feel like there should be some built-in way of doing this in, in a better way than what we're doing now. Because every time I have to set like a constant on a constraint for spacing or something. I always feel like I'm doing something wrong because I'm setting a value explicitly and paddings and margins are usually the same throughout the app if you're doing things right. So those should be extracted to like constants or maybe even something in an asset catalog or something. 
Yeah, for, uh, for sure. So the, the framework off the top of my head had an enum for constraint size padding. So I believe it was a padding of four pixels or eight pixels or 16 pixels or 20 pixels, 24 pixels, I believe. And they were all named extra small, small, medium, large, extra large, I believe. These constraint sizes. And they could be dynamically uh, changed in, in like a theming way. So, yeah, na named constants or named variables, I guess, if you're going to change them at runtime. But yes. So what part of the you know extracting these, these view elements, uh, you mentioned that someone on a completely different team might be in charge of maintaining this, this library. Correct. Correct. So, so uh, what's that like if you need to make it, make a change to it? At, at that large of a scale, there is usually an end to end team that worries about the larger like platform and app issues. And they work closely hand in hand with design. So there, there may be a head of design on the entire, on the entire team. Think of them as the Johnny Ive of the app that has like final say of paddings and colors and stuff like that and unifying it and really owning every pixel. And that team works hand in hand with, with design to make that happen. Okay. Very cool. Yeah. The second thing that we talked about, you talked about, you know, we just talked about you consistency in UI views. What is consistency with like your patterns, your delegation, how you have the controllers talk to each other, navigation, how do you create consistency uh, with that stuff? There was, there's a, a unified router framework. So to traverse from one view to another, yeah, all, all of this navigation happened through a router. That's, that's an example of unifying the navigation. The other thing that we talk about is serialization. So this app is fairly old. It, I believe it's 2012, about six years ago, seven years ago, maybe 2011, when the first uh, lines of code were written. And, they were, and this is before Swift. This is uh, written uh, in Objective-C. This is before auto layout. So there were, there's still some code that, that has fixed frame sizes. This is before self-sizing table view cells, because this was iOS 5, I believe. So there's a lot of code, and serialization is an example of something that's progressed over time. So it went from straight up in Objective-C serialization. So what I mean that is uh, reading and writing, basically, JSON from the web service. It started in Objective-C, and there were C macros that made serialization and deserialization easier to get this data into a model object. Then the next step was to move to Swift. And when, when there was a move to Swift, uh, there was an internal framework built to do the serialization because early on in the Swift lifecycle, there actually wasn't uh, decodable and decodable types. So that, that was the first attempt to unify how serialization happened. But as the language progressed, we, uh, we, the team started using Object Mapper. So Object Mapper is a framework that's fairly popular, was fairly popular in the Swift world, I would say, about a year or two ago. And now everyone is moving codable types. So that's unified uh, over time. So how do you make the decision to go from Object Mapper, which is a based on a very common pattern, just mapping things from different, different types to JSON into an object to maybe something your view can look at, Versus the, the codable or codable, as I can't stop saying. <laughs> is it codable or is it codable? I guess it's, it's spelled, codable, right? It's, it's, code. spelled, it's spelled codable. If they wanted a codable, they should have yeah. spelled it that way. Yeah, you're right. It, it, it was, <laughs> well, Christian Latner, at, when they first announced it at DubDub, basically said codable, and I can't get out of my head. Oh. 
Yeah, put a, he actually <laughs> put a fish emoji in the in the name, and, and I'm stuck with it. But you <laughs> know, that's fantastic. But I just get go ahead. Getting back to your question, how do you make this decision? So this is a person uh, people issue, right? Like communication to make this sort of decision at large scale. You can't just make a decision. You have to coordinate with other teams. You have to coordinate with the end-to-end team. You have to plan it for the release train. When is this release going out? You have to think about backwards compatibility. So are you supporting iOS 11, iOS 10, iOS 9? Where, where is this framework available? So you really have to have a, a roadmap to be able to do a transition like this. And the roadmap has to follow, yeah, the releases, but it also has to follow the cadence of the teams to actually make that happen. That makes sense. Now, typically, most teams are going to work on a sprint one to two weeks. If this type of refactoring takes over, uh, say, a sprint, how, like, how do you coordinate that with the rest of the organization? Oh, boy. Coordinating with the rest of the organization, it's hard. At scale, you could say all issues are almost always communication issues. So... Another team might be going through a crazy initiative that is taking up all of their effort to be in with. So you might need help from an end-to-end team, or you yourself might have to dip into their code to be able to do it. Or it might be a long-lived branch that doesn't get merged into release for a while. So it's it's timing. You, you got to talk with other developers. You have to talk with release managers uh, and really communicate the changes. So you mentioned, uh, like, the linearity of, of the code. Do you guys use an, any tools to like enforce coding practices? Not really. There has been some tests with SwiftLint and other linters. They work well enough. They're getting better. But people get hired because they have good taste, not, not just because of their technical chops. You have to have both technical chops and good taste. And Generally, the, the edict is make your code look like the Swift language, programming language book. And if it doesn't look like that, change it. There is some like personal taste that you have to have to, be, to pull that off. Uh, a lot of things you, you try to test or you try to put a process or you try to put a tools down to help. But, but a lot of times it really comes down to personal responsibility. So you're literally doing things by the book. Correct. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's tricky, especially with code standard stuff, because you can do things like create code standards as an error. So you're trying to compile, which which sounds great because you get it right away. If you have your a space in the wrong thing or an extra new line, oh, okay, fine, you can fix it. But if you're just in hack mode where you're trying to just throw something together, then you end up taking a longer time to do that basic stuff. So catching it from the compiler is not always the best thing. Um, you can run it from command line uh, whenever you want to, which saves you from having to have pristine code when you're just in hack mode trying to figure stuff out. Uh, but that has the problem that people forget to run it. Um, I think a good place is when you're on the build server, so we actually know that, oh, you know, we've got a code standard thing that we need to fix. Because um, it's good to have a code standard, um, especially when you've got you know, dozens of developers on the team. I think it makes sense to, to do it. But it's tricky to find out the place where, where in the process you want to put it. Yeah, correct. Uh, and th- that is kind of 
the style of way that I code. So I'm constantly refactoring. So take a large function and refactor into a bunch of small functions. Take large class and refactor into a bunch of small classes. You, you kind of have to get into the habit of doing that uh, before you push code. For sure. Definitely a good pull request process with good engineers helps you find when, okay, this class got too big, break it up into something else. Um, Correct. Being able to write tests, like if it's too big to test, then it's usually too big to maintain. But one of the things that worries me about large apps is swift compile times because I mean, even medium-sized apps, people are really complaining about how long it takes to compile with half a million lines of code, much of that in Swift, which is static language, it just takes longer to compile. How do you combat massive compile times where people aren't have to sit around for a half hour? Ah, yeah, this is becoming a real issue in the Swift world, isn't it? Uh, I'm kind of used to it from my previous work. It's, even though it's been more than a decade, video games are known for very long compile times, like a full build of, say, a PC or a Sony PlayStation game might take 30 minutes to an hour. And incremental builds, if you're testing on device, might take a really long time to push it to the device, to push the binary to the device. Or you might have a level that loads a gigabyte of assets, and it might actually take 30 seconds for that loading screen to load all the assets. So yeah, I'm starting to see these issues in the mobile app world that I used to see in the video games world. Uh, a bunch of that is around Swift compile times. There was this voodoo magic script that helped break up the app into a bunch of static libraries uh, and try to like make them make faster iterative uh, incremental builds. But that script was totally voodoo to me. I'd like to see, yeah, I'd like to see Apple and the Swift compiler team put this on their roadmap and think through incremental builds. I think they're going to have to work on ABI stability before that to be able to to be able to support better incremental links and incremental builds. Have you tried Xcode 10 yet? I have downloaded it and I have installed it. Uh, I haven't tried it yet uh, more than for more than five or 10 minutes. You tell me, how, how is Xcode 10 looking? Yeah, from my experience with my projects, it's actually building quite faster now, uh, especially if you can use the new build system. Really? I'm, yeah. I'm excited. It's not perfect yet, but yep. uh, it's improved a lot. Yep, Xcode 10 is still in beta, right? So yeah. ho hopefully it improves throughout the beta process. Yeah, I have a video on my Twitter that we can try to find to put in the show notes where I compare building a Swift Vapor project on Xcode 9 and the same project on Xcode 10. And the difference is staggering. It's a lot faster in Xcode 10. That's great. That's awesome. It'd be interesting to see a large open source app like Wikipedia or WordPress, I think, and see how it does under Xcode 9 versus Xcode 10. Yeah. So one of the benefits touted of Swift is more type safety, the able to do you know safer coding by unwrapping optionals and not leaving dangling nulls or nils throughout your code. When you're talking about apps this large, does Swift give you those advantages over Objective-C? Swift certainly did. I would say back in the day when it was all Objective-C, going from Objective-C to Swift made the code base smaller and simpler. So that's one of the big advantages. There just was way less code. 
And there were less language level bugs as well. So a lot of them, a lot of times when you get a nil or a null, it would just silently fail where we wouldn't know that a, a particular use case is failing because a, a message would be sent to nil and it would just, yeah, you just wouldn't know. So maybe you got bad data from a web service and the web service turned that, that value into, say, a nil and you don't, you don't know forever and ever and ever. Yeah, that would be that would be one big example of uh, Objective C bugs that were improved with optionals in Swift. No, I agree. I like the way that the unwrapping in Swift leads you to develop very safe code because you know if you're putting an exclamation point point or a question mark, you should probably think about it what you're doing because um, you could set it out explicitly like we're expecting this to be uh, something we can uh, unwrap but if it's not oh here's the use here's the case of here oh, if we do and just handle it versus objective c it's like eh, it's null or nil you know no big deal we'll just move on which uh, can cause problems I, I believe it was uh tony hoare who was the inventor of algol and he was the first person uh that came up with the concept of null and he calls it his billion dollar mistake <laughs> there we go. <laughs> so, uh, what are th what are the things that we're missing? What have we what have we not talked about? Oh, what have we not talked about? I think we've gotten most of it. I, I think the takeaways are that good good architecture is small, simple, and explicit. I think that would be the big three takeaways. No, I agree. I definitely, and I, I really like the way Swift. Uh, leads me to design better code. I think the solutions that I came up with Swift for code design are are much improved over other languages I've used in the past. You know, I went back, I wrote a little C sharp last year, and I'm, I, I missed a lot of the safe stuff, a lot of the good typing stuff. Even though C sharp generics are a lot better, but anyway, yeah, um, that'll 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 improve hopefully someday. But I think Swift does lead us to um, writing better code and creating the right solution for a large subset of problems. So I, I, I don't want to call myself a fanboy, but I really like working with Swift. Um, and it's important not to forget that Swift is still a really young language. So it's on the correct tra trajectory as well, I would say. True. Uh, one aspect of scale that we didn't talk with that goes along with revenue based off an app is data and A-B testing. When most apps that I've worked on that are large at this amount of scale or lines of code, there's whole teams that really care about the data. So even if the feature looks just like the designer designed it, if the data is not being reported, um, there are problems. How do, you, how, do you, how do you work around that? Oh boy, yeah. That's one thing I forgot to mention. At, the, at this scale, you don't ship features, you ship an A-B test. So there might be, say, a, a product price, and design may design it three different ways, and designing one way might improve conversion by a percentage point or so, and that percentage point really, really matters. So the explosion of code sometimes can have happen because of all of these A-B tests that happen, and you do really have to have your UI be configurable so, so that you can quickly uh, swap views for these A-B tests and you really have to be able to analyze your app uh, and push out metrics from the app of, uh, of what is happening. So do you typically swap out a, a totally different view for an A-B test, like copy, paste it, rename it, use that, or would you modify an existing view? 
Depends. It's it's context, very context dependent. I'm a fan of using UI stack views, and UI stack views have the great property of you can set a an arranged view as is hidden or is not hidden. So depending on A/B tests, you can you can configure a stack view that I like a lot. And and this could be an entire uh, talk as well. How to how to manage code for A/B testing. Definitely, I think there's there's a lot of things and. Just not a lot of people talking about how to do A-B testing, yeah. the code style. Correct. You get things like if you have a bunch of A-B tests running at one time, you could have 8, 16, 32 different code paths. Like how do you how do you keep those sane? Like how do you make sure they're working correctly? Exactly. So if you have a view and there could be an A, a B, and a C version, and on and on and on, I like to put all of them into a stack view and then just set to hidden the tests that, that are not turned on at the moment. So is hidden of arranged views is super powerful at, for configuring views at the view level at least. There are many different types of A-B tests. I've done some that are like just a color change in, in a yeah, view correct. or something. So those are very simple. But some of them are also entire different flows that the user goes through. Let's say you're testing a new login screen, for instance. You're probably using a brand new login flow. So then you have to, when the user is going to enter the login flow, you have to choose which one the user is going to get. And those are also not that hard to do if they are very different from each other. The ones that are the, the, the most complicated are the, the middle ground ones where you need to change something slightly, but it, it's different enough that you, you really have to have, like, let's say, two different views. Yeah, for sure. For, for example, yeah, rearranging a view, for some case, it might be at the top of the view, but, but this, in a, a def, different test, it's way at the bottom of the subview. Now you have to like rearrange some views based on that. And now do all of your constraints work for all screen sizes? <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. One thing that helped me and my, the teams I worked with, um, typically like your, what you, how you turn your, your feature flags, your A-B tests, it's like some static object out there. Um, I made a decision on a previous project that, you know, A-B tests, they're so important, they should be first-class citizens. So that object is typically injected into whatever class needs to know that logic versus just some static thing that takes over the whole application. Uh, but that allows you to write uh, unit tests around your A-B tests. So you can set up all the different, you know, bifurcations of the tests that can run. Um, so your unit tests catch them because a lot of times... It's tough. It's tough to manually catch that, especially as a developer. You have to recompile and do all this different stuff. Yeah. So creating your A/B test objects, um, making them first-class citizens of your app, I think that was helpful. Um, another thing that keeps things sane is like if you create an A/B test, it's simply a Jira ticket. Um, you also insist as a Jira ticket to clean it up when the test is over, because if you leave them out there. Some yes. weird bifurcation <laughs> can just go bad, yes. and like, you're like, what is this? And like, some random person had the app three years ago, and just the thing yes. broke. But find a way to, to get, yeah, to clean it. Retiring up. A/B test, dead code that never runs and will never run again. <laughs> it's a very happy moment when you are able to delete an old 
variation of yep. an A-B test, especially <laughs> if it's a lot of code. Yeah, for sure. Cool. So we're running a little bit low on time. Uh, anything else that we should cover before we get to the picks? I don't think so. So, uh, Guy, uh, do you have a pick for us? For you, the listeners of the iFreak show, Loot Crate is offering an opportunity to save 10% on any new subscription at LootCrate.com. Just enter the promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings. Loot Crate is one of my favorite things. Every month I get a box in the mail, costs less than $20, and it comes with all kinds of goodies. I have stuff from just looking at my shelf, Batman, Spider-Man, Ninja Turtles, Back to the Future, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, and much, much more. So if you're a geek, a gamer, anything like that, and you want cool stuff to put around your office, cool t-shirts, comic books, etc., then definitely check out Loot Crate. To save 10% on your new subscription, go to lootcrate.com slash ruby. Again, that's lootcrate.com slash ruby to save 10% on any new subscription. Enter the promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings. Yes, I'm going to pick an article that's kind of old. It's 18 years old, but I think uh, it's always relevant. It's an article by Joe Spolsky, and it's entitled Things You Should Never Do, Part 1. So there's uh, another part to it as well. Uh, he talks about how it's usually a very bad idea to take an existing code base and rewrite it from scratch. And I, I've been seeing uh, this trend lately of people and companies always wanting to rewrite everything and, and not improve on what they have already. And I think this article is uh, a good one on the subject. Yeah, no, Joel Spolsky was really one of the first people to do a lot of really good blogging you know, years ago, late 90s, early 2000s. And almost none of those rewrites go well. It's like, we'll get it right this time. It's like, well, not so much. Most companies that have at least a working app are better off just doing incremental changes to things that actually affect the business. But no, that was definitely an influential article. So I'm, I'm on board with that. I'm going to do one pick. It's not going to be anything code related. I've got an office in St. Louis in South Minneapolis, and they opened up a pinball bar two blocks away. So they had a bunch of old pinball machines and some new ones. And there's one game I've been playing a lot, and I like it a lot. Uh, Iron Maiden has a, a pinball game they licensed, and it's done by Bally, I think. A lot of fun. So if you can find it, um, you can rock out to two minutes to midnight while you're, you're playing. Pretty easy to get multi-balls and get a good score. And uh, I've had a lot of fun playing pinball because I never really played that much pinball growing up. But it's a fun game, playing something that's got a literal ball rolling around it's kind of fun so that's my pick if you have a chance you can probably find it at a, a local pinball uh, pavilion or something like that uh, parveen do you have any picks for us yeah my pick i'm a canadian citizen with a canadian passport and my renewed passport showed up this morning so i'm gonna assume most of our listeners are americans uh, so my pick is going to be the u.s passport possibly the most powerful document in the world and half of Americans, uh, from what I gather, don't have a U.S. passport. So if you're an American and you don't have a U.S. passport, get one. And once you get one, travel. All right. I'm all for that. Get your passport. I don't have a passport. I have, I have no excuse, but I don't have one. Just haven't had the chance to get away lately. 
Awesome. Thanks this for... might be the most powerful document in the world. I got mine this year. That's cool. And I'm going to use it. <laughs> Perfect. So awesome. Parveen, thanks for coming on the show. If people want to get a hold of you, how can they? My website is parveenkaler.com. That's P-A-R-V-E-E-N-K-A-L-E-R.com. Uh, and my slides from this talk are posted there. I am Kaler on Twitter, K-A-L-E-R, and also on GitHub. Awesome. He also sounds like the dog's ready for a walk. So we'll let you, we'll let you go. Uh, for everyone else, we'll see you all next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.